Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Marin Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Camille Desfars stands as a prominent figure in European energy policy, currently leading the Jacques Delors Energy Center. Her expertise honed through a rich blend of academic and professional pursuits, uniquely positions her at the forefront of shaping the EU's energy landscape. Camille's insight into energy policy are deepened by her diverse professional background. So far, her career has spanned across continents, including project finance roles in Africa's renewable energy sector and as an economic attaché in East Africa. In her latest report for the uh, Jacques Delors Institute, Energy Union 2.0 to deliver the European Green Deal, Camille advocates for a transformative approach to the EU's energy policy, aligning it with the challenges of climate neutrality, energy security, and competitiveness. Sounds exciting for nerds like me. Camille, thank you so much for being here with us today. Welcome to Energetic. Thank you, Marin. Camille, so what would you define as uh, kind of pivotal moments and key experience in your career that has shaped your view and approach towards EU's energy policy? I mean, 2024 is quite an important year for energy policy, uh, for energy democracy in general. So what is your personal view and uh, how have you feel that you have grown to, to this moment in particular? Well, what a, a big question. I would say that I've noticed how energy policy is is addressed, uh, and I think there has always been a, a missing dimension or a dimension that hasn't been as addressed as the others, which is citizens. That I know it's a topic close to your heart as well, but how citizens really can shape policies, but also uh, how their concerns can be better integrated into um, energy policy. And I think that's why one of the pillar of, of the report that I've wrote on uh, energy, EU energy policies ahead of the next European election uh, really is uh, improved governance um, and uh, improved uh, democratic tools. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but I, I think there's, there's this missing dimension of people who can shape the transition. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely music to my ears. And uh, I'm glad that this kind of topic has now become way more mainstream because 10 years, 15 years ago, it was something that was totally overlooked. And uh, we've had many conversations in, in this podcast uh, about really how, let's say, energy has shifted from, let's say, a purely technical issue to uh, some form of a climate issue to also a uh, kind of a citizen issue. And that's exactly the kind of bridges that you have been building through the uh, Jacques Delors Energy Center over the years. Uh, so could you tell me more about really the Jacques Delors Energy Center, about uh, the Jacques Delors Institute, maybe also about Jacques Delors because he passed away recently and I'm sure, I mean, there are many things in his legacy that we still need to embrace and think about uh, for, for the future as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, the Energy Center really comes from um, Jack Delors' um, impetus uh, on greater energy, uh, European energy policy. So when he came back from the European Commission in 1995, 
he decided to create a think tank uh, working on European integration in Paris. And so this is the Jacques Delors Institute. And within the Jacques Delors Institute, he kept being involved and giving direction of, of where the European Union should go. And already back in 2010, he had this visionary um, a move to call for um, European energy community that would later become an energy union when it will be take, it's, uh, it was taken up by Donald Tusk uh, four years uh, later in 2014 and then uh, taken up by the Juncker Commission with the creation of the energy union that really had uh, the objective of um, strengthening a common approach to energy topics. And already at the time, I, I'm, I need to, to highlight that Jacques Delors was an extraordinary visionary because when reading what he wrote and what he thought uh, back in 2010, with the eyes of today, it, it is striking to see how clear he was on the challenges both on the geopolitical side, but also on the social side and the economic side. So I would say already back then he was advocating for a common approach to uh, gas purchase, but also common gas strategic reserves to strengthen uh, the external dimension of the European Union on the energy side. And regarding the social dimension, I think it's really in the DNA of the Jacques Delors Institute, given Jacques Delors' vision and strong commitment to the social um, social justice. Uh, the social and citizen dimension really uh, come natural to, to our work. Uh, he's, uh, he's always been advocating for a, a greater uh, representation of a citizens' interest and the social dialogue um, to, to improve uh, our policy decisions. So, yeah, I mean, I think it, it fits really well, um, both in terms of um, how to have a united and fair and just approach to uh, the energy challenges that we're facing now. and Together with Jacques Delors, we are still convinced that the European Union is the right level for action. And I think it showed, um, it proved right uh, over and over about the past years um, that the European Union is the right level to answer deep geopolitical disruptions, energy crisis, but also the challenge of um, a fair transition. Um, and indeed, I think we've seen also that the climate ambition came from, from the EU level over the past years. And now there's still the challenge of, of taking this ambition from the EU to national and local levels. And I think that's where the citizen dimension becomes critical. And beyond the citizen dimension, of course, there are stakeholders that are working every day on very critical t topics. I'm, I'm thinking about municipalities, I'm thinking about uh, trade unions and um, stakeholders such as um, NGOs, be they climate-oriented or social-oriented, all of them have, have a role to play. And I must admit that I see increasingly a very, very interesting moves from the business side and green businesses really committed to a, a more, yeah, I mean, a more ambitious uh, climate action. Wow, that's really super inspiring because uh, it feels that uh, Jacques Delors and the work that you are doing is really, you know, starting with the foundations really of the energy transition, the security of supply, uh, really putting still people at the center. And it's really like this kind of step-by-step -step approach that is also very, very unique and very, very European at the same time. So it's it's really like making really uh, energy policy 
one of the cornerstones of uh, EU policy in general. And that is, is, it's of course something that I've kind of witnessed over the years, but I'm sure that many of our listeners are not aware how important energy policy is for the, really the, now for the foundations of the European Union. And in your latest report, so I will put the link in the show notes, so you advocate for some form of a strategic overhaul of the EU's energy policy. And you want, of course, you, you aim for uh, addressing the triad of challenges, which are the energy transition, necessary for uh, to address the climate cha- challenges and also the security of supply and also EU uh, competitiveness. Uh, but it's also about social justice, right? So, Gami, can you tell us more about this report and how do you envision this kind of more integrated and goal-oriented energy and climate governance for the EU? And what kind of strategy are you suggesting and also give us a little bit of context regarding the elections and why this report matters now maybe we could reflect on the past on on what the van der leyen uh, commission just uh, is wrapping up now and how it's looking for the future yeah thank you marina so yes indeed i think uh, we've seen uh, and the report really starts with the um, analyzing the EU response to the succession of crises that we've seen over the past four years. We've had, I mean, on top of climate emergency, we've had a pandemic, we had um, weaponization of gas and war in Ukraine. We had more challenging geoeconomic contexts with the adoption of, of the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States and a rising awareness of uh, Chinese domination over clean tech supply chains. And so all of this actually made the European Green Deal that was meant to address the climate emergency a solution to this succession of crises that were, of course, unexpected. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really interesting to highlight how uh, the von der Leyen Commission really uh, fought for the European Green Deal every time it was challenged by um, external crises. And we've seen the unprecedented uh, recovery plan with Next Generation EU that really contributes to filling the green public investment gap um, up to 2026. We've had a Repower EU initiative that was adopted right away as uh, after the start of the war in Ukraine that really man- means to accelerate the phase out of Russian fossil fuels together with the, the green transition. And I think it wasn't really necessarily the move that would have been adopted. Now it's easy to to look back, but I think it's really a very strong weight for the grid transition to have won this narrative uh, and policy orientation uh, fight. So it was really striking to see that uh, you know there was the green deal at the, when when the commission started back in 2019 and there was this green deal announced and then almost immediately after every crisis every crisis made made it an opportunity to boost the green deal and not really diminish it and not to reduce its impact right yeah i mean i can't say that but i mean if we hadn't had all this crisis we wouldn't have such a green deal because even repower eu actually increased the ambition, I mean, at least the Commission's ambition on the Fit for 55 package. So in terms of um, outcome, we've, we've seen really great progress. 
What we can say now uh, that we are coming to the end of this commission's and European Parliament term is that the objectives that you've mentioned, the objectives of um, the energy union and um, European energy policy uh, are under threat. For the first one, which is climate neutrality, we, we need to triple past emission reduction rates over the next years, which is a great challenge and that we require an ambitious implementation of all the files that have been adopted at the EU level. And we see that that can bring up challenges at the member state level because we have a difference in terms of technical, human and financial resources uh, that can really hinder uh, the push uh, from the European level. On the energy security side, we're still very dependent on imported fossil fuels. And we are now increasingly aware of our vulnerability to clean tech supply chains that are very much concentrated and oftentimes in China. And together with, I mean, we even we've, we made progress in terms of EU coordination, we still lack a European um, energy security strategy to address these two issues. And lastly, on the on the price side, we of course we need to keep uh, prices competitive and affordable for businesses and households. And we see that we have a lack of uh, structural lack of competitiveness and an, an investment wall to to go through to realize. I mean to implement the green transition. Green technologies, they have a higher investment cost and lower operational cost. So in the long term, we'll be fine. But for now, going from a high carbon intensive system to a low carbon system, we require more investment, all things equal. Uh, so there are distributional issues and social and political acceptability challenges. And this is why the report really advocates for more European efforts, because the finding that, that we highlight is that despite the progress, EU tools are too national, too temporary. For example, we think of the EU recovery fund that really won't continue after 2026 and needs to re re create a gap in terms of green public finance. EU tools are too voluntary and EU tools are limited to the regulatory tools. Uh, which need to be complemented with technical, human and financial support from, from the EU level as well. So this is why there's four, um, there's, sorry, there's one big recommendation is to strengthen common approach to energy at the EU level with three key recommendations, stronger governance, common funding and, and democratic tools. Yeah, no, I think it's already super, like, uh, so it's, it's, it's very super clear that so far many of the, like, uh, successes we, we, we have are based on um, some kind of temporary tools and not structural tools. And we need those tools to become really structural. And the problem is that with the upcoming elections, maybe certain parties We'll make everything for those tools not to become structural, which would be uh, huge challenges, of course, for Europe's position as, you know, regarding climate change and as uh, really um, one of the strongest voices uh, acting against uh, climate change and and really about this kind of uh, leadership that it shows making those enormous, let's say, climate, economic, uh, geopolitical issues a potential really threat in the long term 
And yes, whereas in the short term, as you said, uh, there are some some things that are really not evident. So it's it's really about like uh, shaping a narrative that demonstrates that we need to keep on pushing for certain things to happen and for them to happen in a very, uh, let's say, a comprehensive way. And uh, I mean, you mentioned different orientations, let's say this way. Uh, let's start maybe with um, funding and investment. So there is an issue about EU budgeting. You said that many uh, tools and instruments were kind of ad hoc and we would end in the 2026. So how can we like uh, increase EU budgeting, EU clean investment that would eventually lead us to more resilience, maybe more prosperity uh, as well. And you also suggest, I think, uh, a sovereignty fund. So how would that look like really? Yeah, so funding really goes together with improved governance, but we can come back to that afterwards. But uh, yeah, indeed, we um, we have a very well-identified um, funding gap at the European level that has been highlighted by many experts and other think tanks over the course of, of the years. As the crisis were piling up, uh, we've seen that investment needs also increase. And we see that um, accelerating uh, the phase out of Russian fossil fuels, accelerating the transition because of the war in Ukraine, actually requires more investments from the EU level. And so the think tank Agora Energy Bender uh, back in 2022 was advocating for a sovereignty fund of, um, of uh, 100 billion euros until 20, uh, 2027, so over three years. So we see that it's uh, from a German think tank, a uh, very, um, very strong expertise that we're advocating for such uh, an additional envelope. So we are far from there, unfortunately, because um, fiscal policy and EU budget is really decided in, in the Council, in, in the European Union, um, current architecture with the unanimity. So it's a very difficult discussions that are ongoing now at the political level. And I wanted to fit in this debate and this discussion by showing how high the consensus is among experts, among um, financial institutions as well. We've seen the ECB also uh, with a, st a staff paper asking for um, an EU energy and climate security fund of uh, 500 billion euros until 2030. So it's quite uncontroversial, the fact that we need more action. Uh, we need to finance uh, joint infrastructure projects, um, electric grids, uh, pan-European clean tech support schemes to answer the Inflation Reduction Act that really has the least feature that is quite attractive for emerging technologies. So, so yeah, this financing issue, I think it's the most uncontroversial measure that, that we put forward. And I think it's um, the European Commission is actually well aware of that because the sovereignty fund was actually in the Ursula von der Leyen uh, State of the Union speech back in uh, 2022 already. So, yeah, it's been floating around, but uh, unfortunately, again, the discussions uh, among uh, national governments in the council really didn't come up with anything ambitious. Uh, and we see that, like, the, 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 the small initiative that came out of, of this uh, idea of um, sovereignty fund is the STEP, so the strategic platform for, for the uh, finance technologies, which has been further reduced in the past uh, uh, council meeting on the 14th and 15th December. So we 
We don't see anything bright on this side currently uh, in political discussions. Um, this is also why I think European elections are really a window of opportunity to really have this debate and take this debate out of closed doors uh, meetings in the council and small room meetings uh, uh, among the think tanks. Uh, and so there's a, a, an issue also with the, the timing of, of putting this debate within the, the public debate and broader debates to really also have um, uh, future MEPs take up this, this, uh, this idea of, uh, of having more European solidarity in terms of funding, uh, because solidarity cannot only be a narrative. And I think this is also some uh, something that Jacques Delors said when we had the, the, the COVID crisis, is that uh, Europe will uh, either be more united or decline. And I think this is quite a well-shared uh, um, analysis among uh, university uh, academics and, and, and think tanks currently. What you just said about like uh, finance being uh, an enabler for everything, for all the rest to happen, is exactly what was shared among uh, many, many parties at the COP in Dubai, the COP28 in Dubai uh, in December 2023. And, and it feels that I really wanted to start by this point because it feels very much like it's the, the kind of the last mile and really the, the thing that we, we need to as people who care about uh, climate and want to make a step forward as really the thing that will kind of make or break the climate solution and the approaches that we need, etc. So the momentum is growing around uh, climate finance and different tools uh, that we need for the energy transition to happen concretely in, in people's lives. And as you said, the uh, in Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., It's quite impressive. I mean, I think I will need to have somebody from the U.S. tell us a, a little bit more about that in the in the podcast uh, soon enough, because it seems that there is so much that can happen, but uh, with limited finance and uh, like not well articulated tools, the the status quo remains the same. Whereas we actually need to to push forward. But as you said, there is another important dimension regarding finance, which is uh, the governance side and the fact that um, the discussion about how funds are located do not stay in within the same uh, closed uh, doors, but the discussion becomes really, really democratic somehow. So one of the things uh, you uh, advocate for in this paper is also uh, the kind of uh, broader democratic participation with, uh, for instance, citizen assemblies, stakeholder dialogues, and how important they are to, to shape EU policies. And now we understand that when you mean energy policies, you also mean the money that goes uh, into those kind of policies. So why do you think this dimension is so significant? And what kind of impact uh, the kind of platforms that you were suggesting in your paper can have on implementation? Yeah, I mean, you definitely nailed the, the key point here is that if we have funds, we need to ensure that they are effectively used to achieve our, our, our objective, which is climate neutrality, at, at not, at, I mean, while ensuring energy security and reasonable prices. So indeed, there is issues and already, for example, from the next generation EU implementation, so the recovery funds, we see that a part of the these recovery funds were um, earmarked for the green transition. 
And we see already that there is a lack of um, of capacity at the local level to really lead these uh, green projects that are more complex to implement. So we see that there's uh, teams needed, but there's also potentially uh, teams that are too small to actually handle additional tasks uh, related to the transition because we we are now entering this new era of, of having to implement uh, many green projects at the same time and at a pace that we haven't um, been doing before. So I think there's governance really comes together with financing because we need to improve the effectiveness of, of the funds, the way they are spent, so to ensure that we really um, contribute efficiently to the transition. And for that, uh, improved stakeholder participation, skills, and sufficiently staffed teams uh, in administrations is really key. But maybe let me focus on on um, on uh, stakeholder participation first. We see increasingly that EU funding uh, could be based on national planning. Uh, we've seen that with the recovery plan. Uh, we now see that with the social climate plans that need to be drafted. And unfortunately, we see the same gaps in terms of stakeholder uh, in participation guarantees replicated in, in the social climate fund. So the key issue with in involving properly stakeholder implementation is that some of them, such as municipality, local authorities, will be co-implementers of the fund. So if they are not properly involved in shaping uh, the measures and investments, there's more chances that these measures and these investments will not be uh, properly implemented, either because they are not aligned with local needs or because um, there are uh, needs that haven't been addressed at the local level, for example, the lack of uh, skills or staff or capacity. Uh, so there is this key really to improve the efficiency and the quality of, of, uh, of spending to really work on, on greater stakeholder participation so that they can raise their concerns and also contribute to improving the way these, these uh, funds are spent. The, and this is why with the upcoming Fit for 55 implementation with many new regulations to implement on, on building renovation, on, on phasing uh, thermal cars, um, there is a really a key issue with um, creating spaces where national uh, stakeholders, be they municipalities, uh, finances, banks, uh, green businesses, trade unions, NGOs, a space where they can meet and discuss the challenges that they face and so that they can also interact closely with national governments to really contribute to co-creating and co-implementing these, these huge changes. The challenges are so huge that we really need uh, levels of collective action that are completely unprecedented. And I think we have a strong basis for that in the European Union. We already have good practices of multi-level governance, uh, but we just need to strengthen that to really achieve our objectives. Yeah, because the, the risk is, I mean, the elections, they always, uh, so they are upcoming in June, and I hope all our listeners who can actually vote will go vote and will be motivated by what you just say. But really, the elections, they are about the 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 dimension that people can, can actually see and perceive in many, many uh, people don't have the big picture, but they will vote for something that they, they can actually uh, fathom, they can actually embrace. And if you really want people to 
to embrace uh, the opportunities that have been uh, developed through the various instruments that you mentioned, such as the 55 package, uh, the Green Deal, etc. You really need for them to be part of the conversation. And many of the things happen at the, at the local level. And in the meantime, we also know that there is a lot of challenges related to this kind of not in my backyard uh, perception uh, that you don't want anything built uh, behind you. I mean, recently I read the term uh, banana, build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone, uh, which means some form of enormous discontent regarding the energy transition, regarding uh, actually addressing climate change, whereas we actually need those tools. So uh, do you think that this kind of, um, let's say, uh, more uh, stakeholder dialogues, but you also mentioned citizen assembly, could be the right way to kind of deal with those forms of discontent? Because, I mean, many of those discontents are legitimate. I'm not saying it, but I think it's it's really important for for the people to understand also the big picture, to feel that they are being listened to. Like, do you think that the European Commission needs to be more into this kind of active listening approach rather than a kind of perceived top-down approach? Yes, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, we we need both approaches, uh, both top-down and, and bottom-up. But I think the bottom-up approach is the, <laughs> it should really be strengthened in the next years. And indeed, there are... Um, um, so addressing the discontent, I think it really is about um, perceived justice. And it is going to be the same for, I think, pretty much any kind of climate policy or any kind of policy. But if you perceive that, well, you have a windmill in your backyard, but some people are enjoying it and you are not, then it can create frustration. I think we are able to, to, to accept, you know, uh, change, if we feel that everybody's doing their share. And uh, this is why I really believe that um, citizen assemblies at the European level, but also at the local, um, regional and national level can really help recreating spaces where citizens can meet. Uh, so the, as, you, as you know, but maybe I can just uh, precise this for your audience, citizen assemblies are composed of randomly chosen as citizens that are representative of, of the society in terms of so, socially, economically, and, and in terms of age and so on. So the idea is really to recreate a very a sample of the society that really represents uh, the diversity of, of uh, life experiences and make a space for them to, to actually interact uh, with, an, with one another, as well as to create this space protected from vested interests to interact with experts and also having experts interact with uh, regular citizens. And I think this two-side conversation is really important because we sometimes see experts a bit disconnected from what's happening on the ground and the life experience of, of people. And since we see massive changes that we need to undertake for the transition that will impact the way we live, the way we work, the way we move, then it, it's really important to include in the picture everyone's life experience and perspective. And we need to address the current inequality in terms of, um, of political inclusion, where 
we always hear the same uh, people or the same concerns and we uh, silence or uh, disregard uh, other concerns. So there's a really key political uh, issue, political and I would say institutional issue because we've seen citizen assemblies really giving great results in terms of um, citizen, uh, the social equitability of, of the citizens involved uh, towards regulatory obligations, for example, or sufficiency measures that aren't, aren't really favored by uh, uh, current policymakers. So I think it is a really interesting tool to rebalance this debate and show that what are the options, what are the, the concerns of the citizens, what are the alternatives, and what could be the policy designs that could work? Because I think we can't think anymore uh, one policy measure with one policy measure. It's, it's, it needs to be a mix. It needs to be an obligation with social compensation, with green subsidies that really creates an enabling framework for change for everyone to, to actually be able to access alternatives and also accept changes that are necessary. So. Again, I'm talking about institutional change because I think uh, citizen assemblies really need to be closely tied to uh, the decision-making process uh, because this is one of the critics that can really, um, I mean, that has been raised quite often against these uh, schemes that are they are disconnected from policy um, decisions and therefore do not have any impact. Uh, so there's this idea of having permanent citizen assemblies uh, at the EU level that could maybe be synchronized with a state of the energy union address, for example, every year, so that or feeding into the work program of the European Commission or at least having the commission having a debate on the, based on the recommendations of, of the citizen assembly on climate um, at the EU level. But indeed, as you, as you mentioned, and I think you're also pushing a lot for that in your work, like hearing concerns is really important. And for now, we, mo we have more uh, consultation phases that really don't really lead to any dialogue. And this is where the political frustration can really go. So a lot uh, of food for thought. And as we are, uh, this podcast is, is uh, reaching to its end, I would really like to hear what is your view, as Camille, and what makes you really hopeful for the months and years to come? Well, uh, I've put a lot of um, of my thinking in this report. So I would say that I really believe that the ecological transition challenge is more social, political and institutional challenge than anything else. And we need the institutions to address this content. We need the institutions to address the lack of um, of uh, political inclusion of many citizens and many interests to have um, a stronger democracies. And I think if we don't have a strong democracy that can really foster solidarity and cooperation, then uh, we, we, we are likely to fail on the transition. And um, <laughs> what gives me hope uh, these days is essentially that the European election can lead to, to more Uh, I mean, to a less gloomy future for the European Union and that the European Union can really keep being an ambitious leader on the climate side by integrating further the uh, social and political dimension uh, of the transition. 
Thank you so much, Camille. Um, this was a super inspiring and, uh, and and rich conversation and I enjoyed it very, very much. So I will put everything in the show notes. Uh, if there are any other resources that you would like to share, please let me know. And for anybody who would like to reach out to you, you are, of course, available on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I think you are also on Twitter. Well, X. but yeah, uh, see you very, very soon. And thank you so much for um, all those super insightful uh, information. Thank you, Marine. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.